Well, last week, as I was teaching on manna, we're in this series on manna, M-A-N-N-A, I gave you a quote, and for the life of me, and it wasn't in my notes, it just popped into my head, and I could not pull up the name of the former Prime Minister of the Netherlands who came up with the quote. On the way home, I couldn't pull it up. I got home and his biography was on my desk because I've been reading it. I don't know if you've ever heard um, of Abraham Kuyper, but Abraham Kuyper was a fascinating individual. He, um, he was a pastor. Um, he was a brilliant student. Um, <laughs> he was born in 1837. I'll just read from uh, James Bratt's uh, biography on Abraham Kuyper, K-U-Y-P-E-R. From his birth in 1837 in the Dutch seaport of Masuluas to his death in The Hague in 1920, Kuyper's life encompassed an extraordinary range of enterprises. As only a partial list, he was a minister of the Dutch Reformed Church, the driving force behind a major schism in the church. Uh, He fought the liberals and stood for the word of God. Uh, He was a professor of theology, the longtime editor of a daily newspaper, the founder of the Netherlands' first mass-based political party, an effective advocate for public funding of religious schools, the founder of a university, a much-celebrated traveler in Britain and America, a member of the Dutch Parliament and later Senate, and from 1901 to 1905, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, and throughout his adult life, an absolutely tireless author on topics political, theological, cultural, and devotional. Somehow, he he also managed to fit time for several long collapses from nervous exhaustion. Well, I wonder why. He had three major stretches in his life, where we call it a nervous breakdown. But you read what this guy did. It's amazing he didn't have 10 stretches. Uh, Somehow he also managed to fit time for several long collapses from nervous exhaustion that seemed only to bring him back with larger ambitions for longer agendas. Quite a man, Abraham Kuyper. Uh, It was Kuyper. We're talking about manna, and when you talk about manna, you've got to go to the Old Testament, and you find manna in the segment of Old Testament history. Um, the first Jew was Abraham, uh, Genesis 12. God made a covenant with Abraham. He was a pagan. God said, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to give you descendants that out more than the stars in the heavens. Uh, he was the first Jew. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Ten of the sons hated one of the sons named Joseph. This is called history. This is called Old Testament history. And 1 Corinthians 10 says these things, what things? Old Testament history were written for our instruction. Okay? This is why we study the Old Testament. Uh, I'm reading a book right now, and uh, 
gee, I can't remember the name of the author. What a shock. <laughs> it's a really good book, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> and now I'm forgetting the title. But I still recommend it highly, because it's... If I'm not mistaken, let's see if I can pull this out. Uh, the title is Jesus on Every Page. It's about the Old Testament. Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. In some way, shape, or form, Jesus is there. Um, the Bible all fits together, Old Testament, New Testament. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. Ten of them, ten of the boys hated one of the boys named Joseph. They sold him into slavery. Uh, figured he'd be dead, but he wound up in Egypt. You know the remarkable story of how God worked in his life, took him from the outhouse of being a slave in Potiphar's home to running the whole estate. Eventually, he winds up co-ruler of the most powerful nation in the world, co-ruler, -co co-pharaoh in Egypt. Famine hits but he has prepared and been prepared by God. Uh, one day his brothers show up because there's famine in the land. They don't recognize him. Uh, he tweaks them a little bit, uh, scares them a little bit. Uh, anyway, at a certain point, reveals himself. They go home. First time they brought their youngest brother, Benjamin, whom he loved. Then came and announced to the father, Joseph is alive. They're all reunited. That's how the Jews got into Egypt during the season of famine. This is all called history. Hegel said history teaches us that men never learn from history. A lot of us think history is boring. That's because in high school, our football coach taught history. <laughs> And, and the football co or baseball, whatever you had. I mean, in American history, all I ever learned about was uh, Bear Bryant and Daryl Royal and John McKay and <laughs> Amos Alonzo Stagg. That's all we ever talked about. So I was a little deficient on American history. But history is fascinating. Because see, this Old Testament, it says these things were written for our instruction. Let's just grab. I'm not quite there. Let's just grab. Let me just grab the Old Testament. You see your Bible there? That's pretty much Old Testament history. These things. It, it's either accounts of history or the accounts of the kings or psalms written at a certain particular point. Um, uh, you got wisdom literature, David, you got Solomon, you got prophets, you got the long prophets, you got the short prophets. They're all in there, who spoke to the kings, who spoke to the nations, who spoke to Israel and Judah. It's all history. These things are written for our, what? Instruction. Okay. So that's why we're going over this a little bit. So Joseph, his brothers show up uh, because uh, he says, you, you guys go get dad and bring him in here. And they set up a subdivision called Goshen, and the Jews had their own place. Gated community, really nice, water going through it. It was, it was pretty neat. Uh, condos or, you know whatever you wanted, golf course, or the Egyptian equivalent thereof. That, now, there's a book. That's all in Genesis. The next book is called Exodus, or Exit. See that over the door there? 
exit. Every door leading out of this has a red sign over it called exit, but they might as well say exodus. Because Exodus is the story after 400 years of them being in Egypt. The brothers all show up with dad. They all show up to join and, and to live with Joseph in Goshen. Uh, if you read the early stages of Exodus, it says, and a king arose, a pharaoh arose. So, so Joseph ruled and reigned, and then he dies, and then you get another pharaoh, another pharaoh. Uh, one day, uh, a king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. He didn't know his history. He had a football coach teaching him Egyptian history. So he didn't know anything about Joseph. Okay, so be it. Uh, but all he knew was there was this group of people, these Israelites, who had a birth rate that far exceeded the birth rate of the Egyptian people. I mean, these people, every time he turned around, they're having kids. And he begins to look at the demographics, and we're getting outnumbered. And he decided he better enslave them before they enslave them. So they did. So suddenly the Jews, the Israelites, become slaves. And they're going to be slaves roughly for 400 years. And then you read, sovereignly, providentially, uh, there were so many of them, as the years went by, there were so many of them that the, one of the pharaohs said, listen, if they have a baby boy, throw them in the Nile River. That's not when you want to have a baby boy. Sometimes we look around and we say, oh, you know, you, young couples, say, yeah, this is no time to have kids. That was no time to have a kid. But you do not let the dynamics of the world situation determine the blessing of having children because God oversees our children in coming generations. So Moses is born at maybe the worst time that a, a young male could ever be born. And providentially, he is protected. His mom makes a little ark. You know the story. Pharaoh's daughter just happens to see him. Okay, you get all this? This is history. She sees him, adopts him. His sister's there. Shall I get a, a nursemaid from the Hebrews? Oh, yes, that would be wonderful. So... Moses' mother becomes his nanny in the household of Pharaoh. He is raised as a son of Pharaoh up until the age of 39. And then he realizes, God did not put me here. All my people are suffering. I'm in the palace. I'm going to the Ivy League schools. I've got the best of everything. Why am I the exception? There must be a reason that God put me here. And if you read Stephen's account... In Acts chapter 7 or 6, read them both, it'll be good for you. I think it's Acts 7, where he gives the history of Israel as he's making his defense to the Jewish council. He talks about Moses, and you know the story, it's also in Exodus, where one day he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating up one of the Jewish slaves. Moses steps in, defends the guy, kills the guard. Moses thought they would understand. The Israelites would understand that God was granting them deliverance through him. He understood by the time he was 39, God didn't just put me here for my personal benefit and pleasure. God put me here to deliver these people, and he was right, but he was 40 years off. And suddenly Pharaoh turned on him for killing one of the guards. He has to flee into the wilderness. And he's there for 40 years until the day he comes across this bush that is burning and not being consumed, and God speaks to him and says, go back and bring my people out. Are you still with me? 
It's kind of wild stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> so he goes and gets... By the way, he'd been in that wilderness 40 years. He'd been a military leader. We know from Flavius Josephus. He said Moses, as a young man, was a military leader, had an all-night march, took back the city of Memphis, which had been captured by the Cushites, captured them. He came back to a hero's welcome in Egypt. He was trained in all the learning of the Egyptians. Moses was a gifted, he, 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 he was a leader, he was a military leader, he was Schwarzkopf, he was an academic, he had the equivalent of a PhD in the ancient Egyptian Semitic universities. He was a brilliant man, and then for 40 years, he's on hold in the wilderness, leading some sheep around. And then at the end of 40 years, when he hits 80, God says, I want you to go back and get him. And he doesn't want to go because this very confident man had been drained of all of his confidence. It's funny how God works in a man's life. God takes strong men, strong-willed men, and what does he do? He'll break you down, man. And you get your plans and your hopes and your dreams and you get your aspirations and I'm going to do this and this and this. And what does he do? He crushes us. And it's the best thing that ever happens. And he redirects our lives and it's usually true. A tremendous amount of pain. And then what he does, he begins to rebuild us. This is what he did with Moses. You say, I thought you were teaching manna. I'm getting there. <laughs> this is called context. Okay? So Moses goes back. Pharaoh's not going to let these people go because they're the economic engine. They're slaves. Those pyramids, I mean, those just weren't temporary workers in town. Those were the Egyptians that did all that stuff. Now, the, the, the Israelites that did all that stuff. Moses shows up, let my people go. By the way, Moses probably, I'm not probably, he knew Pharaoh because they were raised together. Now, does the text say that? No, but you just put the timeline together. Moses was in that family. So now he shows back up. What are you doing here? God says, let them go. Oh, I'm not letting them go. They're the economic engine of this nation. So then, through the power of God, ten plagues come upon the Egyptians. Finally, the, the last plague is it. Every firstborn is taken. He says, get out of here. They plunder the Egyptians, take their wealth, and they're going to the promised land. Now, now they're going to exit. That's Exodus. They hit the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind because God changed his mind. If you read Exodus 13 and 14. They got the sea in front of them. Probably mountains on both sides. And suddenly they see 600 chariots coming after them. Because Pharaoh said, what the heck have I done? And they have no way out, and they have no escape. And what does God do? God opens the sea. They pass through on dry land. And then Pharaoh's army, they come in, and then the waters consume them. And now they're going into the promised land. It wasn't, as I've said, this is a little bit of review. Uh, it wasn't that far up to the promised land. Uh, wasn't that far at all. At a, at a certain point, a few weeks, maybe a couple months later, God said in Numbers chapter 13, take 12 men, one from each tribe, each man a leader among them. Get your best leaders from each tribe. Go do a reconnaissance mission. They do it. They come back 40 days later, give the report. It's an incredible land. Yeah, the Ites live there, most powerful people on the face of the earth at that time. But they had great cities. They had great crops, great orchards. And what God had said was, 
what the ites have built and they were they were incredibly the evil the abom it, it, it was a stench in the nostrils of god what they were doing um Archaeologists believe that many of their children were born with venereal diseases, born with them. Uh, they sacrificed children in the fire, would throw babies live into the fire. Um, God said, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to fight the battles. You're going to defeat them, destroy them. And then I'm going to give you everything they have, because that's the land I promised to Abraham. Okay. What happened? As they sent the 12 spies in, they come back, and 10 of the 12 spies saw the giants. There was a little race of giants. They said, we can't take these guys. They'll kill us. Moses, um, Caleb, and Joshua said, no, we can take them. God will fight for us. But the 10 influenced the whole congregation. And one of the things they said, God's brought us out here to kill our children. So God says to the adults who said that, all right, here's the deal. You think I'm going to kill your kids? What I'm going to do is let you wander. And anybody over the age of 20 is going to die in this wilderness because you're going to wander for 40 years. And then what I'm going to do after all of you are died off, I'm taking your kids into the land and giving it to them and blessing them. This is history. So they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, Exodus... 16. They're wandering in the wilderness. How do you feed 2 million people for 40 years in a wilderness when all supply lines have been cut off? Uh, we mentioned last week that if, when you come to know Christ, at some point in your life as a Christian man, he will send you into the wilderness. And all normal supply lines will be cut off. Uh, it seems to be the process by which God matures his men and takes his men from immaturity to maturity. Abraham Kuyper, what do you have there? David Murray. You're right, I, and I'll be honest with you. It just came to me as I was talking, but I'm glad you were my backup. It's David Murray, and the book is Christ, Jesus on Every, Jesus page. On every page. That's the book that was, was so good. Thank you. Would one of you guys mind grabbing that for me? Jesus on every page. Yeah, right. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate that. Um, now, Kuiper. Let's go back to Kuiper. Because I started with Kuiper. And you said, yeah, then you went all over the map. Yeah, sort of. But I had a point. My point is, Abraham Kuiper, this amazing guy that God used, and most of us have never heard of the guy. Uh, I mean, the, the, the gifts that he had, the influence that he had in that nation, um, Kuiper found himself in a prolonged wilderness for three different stretches in his life. Not fun times. But see, a man who is greatly used is going to spend time in the wilderness. That's just how God works. Uh, it was A.W. Tozer who said, God will not use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I remember when I heard that, I was a young man, and I thought, I'm not sure I buy that. Well, I buy it now. I don't know about use, being used greatly, but I know a little bit about being hurt deeply, and so do you. It's the normal Christian life. Um, we do not grow if we have easy lives. We do not grow if everything is handed to us. We grow through adversity. Adversity. 
We, go, we grow through hardship. We grow through difficulty. Is that not true? Most of us in here have given our kids too much because we've had much. And then at a certain point you say, you kind of realize it and you pull back. Why? Because you know what? I'm really not doing them any good. I can't afford to give them more. I need to pull back. I need to get their attention. They need to toughen up. They need to develop some character. They've been handed too much too early too soon. This is what, see, and, and God, who is the perfect father, he takes us through adversity. and He'll put us in the wilderness in order to do the work which he wants to do. He doesn't want us narcissistic men who just love themselves. He wants to, us to be servant leaders. The Son of Man did not come to be served. Jesus didn't come to be, to, to be served. Jesus came to serve. And those of us who are his men, we're called to the same thing. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2. Although he existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. So he laid aside his privileges, he came to earth. He humbled himself. Jesus, Je Jesus laid aside his privileges as God came to earth. What's humility? Humility is preferring someone else over yourself. That's all humility is. But see, we're all selfish. We're all self-willed. Looking out for number one, that's our motto, before we come to the Lord. And then what happens is, when we come to the Lord, see, he becomes number one, and he wants us to learn to look out for others. That same Philippians passage says, don't just look out for your own interest, but for the interest of others. You have to look out for your interest, but see, it's just not all about you. You're looking to serve your husband, your father, your grandfather, or you're a young single guy. Well, you ought to be serving somebody somewhere, somehow. Well, Steve, I'm really, I'm really messed up right now. I'm in, a, I'm, in a, a real, I'm in a huge depression. That may be. One of the things that'll help you get out of that depression you go find someone who's worse off than you are and you look for a way to serve them. That'll help you. You see, we're not called to be served. We're called to serve. This is part of maturing in Christ. He often takes us through the wilderness to get us there. He took Kuiper through the wilderness. He will take you through the wilderness. So Kuiper was my setup for manna. Took me a while to get there, like 40 years to get there tonight. But here's the quote. Here's the quote. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. We're living in interesting days in this country. We're in the days of, uh, <laughs> it's different than it used to be around here in this country. Uh, we're, we're living in a time right now where government and federal bureaucracies all say, they look at every square inch of existence and they say, mine. Oh, but that's not yours. That's God's. 
They see, they, they see the earth and they see resources in the earth. And they go, that's mine. That's not yours. That's his. I don't care what area of life it is. They say, that's mine. I want to control that. Yeah, but you don't control it. Interesting, isn't it? In John 6.35, oh, by the way, when they're in the wilderness for 40 years, all supply lines are cut off. How do you feed people for 40 years, two million of them? How do you feed them when all supply lines are cut off? God fed them by manna. Manna. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, you guys still with me? Okay. E.W. Pink wrote this. Uh, based on Exodus 16, you might as well turn there in your Bible, since this is Bible study. I just kind of gave you an overview, kind of helicoptered some Old Testament history. Um, Exodus 16.1. See, in 14, you got the Red Sea. And then in chapter 16, and in 15, they're thanking God for getting them through the Red Sea, okay, and delivering them. Then in 16, then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. That's not like sin, you know, breaking the law of God. It's just sin. Uh, there's, there's a mountain called Sinai, Sinai, region, okay? They came to, the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, Sinai, Watch this. On the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So they note it on the calendar. It's very specific. This is history. And then what happens is um, they start complaining because they don't know how they're going to be fed. And God says, well, I'm going to give you manna. We'll get to that in just a minute. Let me read this from A.W. Pink, his comments on this. The leading of Israel into the wilderness of sin brings out the strength of the faith of Moses. Here for the first time, the full privation of desert life stared the people fully in the face. Every step they took was now leading them farther away from the inhabited countries and conducting them deeper into the land of desolation and death. Very important to understand that. They've left Egypt. They've left civilization. They've left the cities with the supply lines, with the warehouses, with the... Um, well, they just left it all. And they're going into this wilderness. There's nothing in this wilderness. He goes on and says this. The isolation of the wilderness was complete. And the courage and faith of their leader in bringing... Who was their leader? Moses. In bringing a multitude of at least two million people into such a howling waste demonstrates his firm confidence in the Lord God. Moses was not ignorant of the character of this desert. He had lived for 40 years in its immediate vicinity. When he had to flee Egypt for his life, he went into the wilderness. What wilderness? The wilderness they're going to wander in for 40 years. He knew how desolate it was. Now, it's one thing to be able to forage and feed a wife and a couple of kids. It's another thing to have two million men, women, and children. But God said, go in, and he goes in. 
Why? Because he walked not by sight, he walked by faith. His eyes were not on the external circumstances or the supply lines or the budget or the shortfall or this or that. His eyes were on the living God who had done 10 miraculous plagues, then an 11th getting them through the Red Sea. His eyes were on that, that God who is the living God. He knew full well where he was taking them. He had lived for 40 years in its immediate vicinity, and therefore he knew full well that only a miracle, yes, a series of daily miracles, could meet the vast needs of such a multitude. In this, his faith was actually superior to the faith of Abraham. Isn't that interesting? See, Old Testament, New Testament, God always has his men walking by faith. There's some area of your life, there's some area of your life that you cannot control, that you can't get your arms around, that you cannot fix. And the fact of the matter is, if God doesn't come through for you in that area of your life, you're finished. You are completely and totally dependent on Him and trusting. Now in John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. What Jesus is doing in John 6 is that he is proving that he is God. He makes a statement, I am the bread of life. Earlier in John 6, he feeds the 5,000, which we've said in here are actually 20,000 when you count the women and kids. They had some loaves, they have some fishes, just a handful. He feeds 20,000 people and there's, and there's food left over. So after that, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. By the way, in the wilderness, before they had manna, God turned bitter water sweet in Exodus 15. And then in Exodus 17, after the manna, he tells Moses, there's that rock and water pours out because there is no water. Water pours out and pours out and pours out and pours out and pours out to take care of the needs of two million people. So the essentials of life, they were cut off from all supply lines. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he means all of life. All of life. Because he created life. He is the giver of life. Uh, if you look at um, Hebrews chapter 1, we're talking about manna. Manna is a timely provision of God. They would get up in the morning and there would be dew and that dew would evaporate, and it was manna. That was their food. That's Exodus 16. Uh, I'll get back to that in a minute. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Watch this. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Where does life come from? comes from Christ. Read John chapter 1. Christ was the primary agent of the Trinity in creation. All, th all things are created by him, for him, and through him. Christ created life. In him was life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Acts 17. In him we live and move and have our existence. He is the inventor of life, and he is the sustainer of all life. Know that. 
We never hear this if you don't read your Bible. Do you? And a lot of us, we, we, we have sipped the Kool-Aid here. He is the inventor. He is the author of life. There was no life until he brought it into existence. He spoke it into existence. Okay. Verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Watch this. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. All things in the world. In other words, he's created the world. He sustains the world and everything in it by the word of his power. So he invented life, he created life, and he sustains all life. Christ does. A little book called Concise Theology. I remember the title because I'm reading it by J.I. Packer. Good little tool. See, manna, we're studying manna. What is manna? Manna was a daily provision of food for two million men, women, and children when all supply lines were cut off. It would miraculously appear every morning. If you took too much, if you took more than an omer, if you didn't take an omer, it all, you got exactly an omer. If you tried to keep it, it would go bad. The next morning, it would be there again. It was that way every, every day for 40 years, except on the sixth day, God said, take double, because there won't be any on the seventh day. It's the Sabbath, so they would take double. And when they take double on the sixth day and obey God, it wouldn't go bad. It would last for two days. But at the end of the day, if you took it, it would go bad. It was supernatural. Manna was God's provision. It was a well-timed provision. Okay. There's a doctrine called the providence of God. The, prov the word provision and the word providence have the same root. The providence of God is the well-timed provision of God in every area of life. Can I read this to you? You say, Steve, I've been here a couple of years. You're always talking about providence. Yeah, I am. Because we live off providence. We live off of it. We've forgotten it. Earlier generations of Christians were always talking about providence. You don't hear it too. I had a pastor maybe 10 years ago. I'd spoken in his church, local, good guy. I saw him in a restaurant, I don't know, a few weeks later. And he said, hey, how you doing? And I'd taught someone providence. And he walked by and he said, hey, good to see you. Yeah, you know, we talked for a minute. He took off. He stopped. He turned around. He goes, he goes hey, tell me again. How do you define providence? He's a good guy. But he was a little puzzled on providence. And he's a pastor. You don't want to be puzzled on providence. You live off of providence. You live off the provision. Providence is John 6.35 in every area of your life and for the whole world. All right, I'm going to quote you from J.I. Packer. You guys ready for this? What are you going to say, no? Okay. Now, he's going to quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and all that was the group of pastors got together and tried to assimilate the teaching of the Bible, and they would have the verses, and they put it in language that they could teach to their children. And by the level of this reading, you'll see education was better in their day than it was than it is in ours. So listen to this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. You know what that means? It means God runs the whole world. 
and everybody in it. If creation was a unique, now this is Packer, if creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the creator, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, involves himself in all events, and directs all things to their appointed end. You get this? He created life, he owns life, he runs life. There's a prophetic plan for the ages, it's on schedule. Things aren't out of control, they're under control. This is how you sleep at night. This is why you're gonna be okay. He's given you life, he sustains your life until the moment he's appointed for you to die. And then you're out of here. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you're good. You're actually better. Okay? This model is a purposeful personal management with total hands-on control. God is completely in charge of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. Okay? Right, gonna, he's going to quote Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. I'll, I'll quote it too. And don't let this, don't, and just listen. This will encourage your heart. Some of you guys couldn't sleep last night. This will help you sleep. The Bible clearly teaches God's providential control, number one, over the universe at large. I'll just give you one verse, Psalm 103, verse 19. Secondly, he has absolute control over the physical world, Job 37. Number three, over the brute creation, all the animals, everything in it, uh, Psalm 104, 21. Uh, he has control over the affairs of the nations, Job 12, 23. He has control over man's birth and lot in life, 1 Samuel 16, 1. Uh, he has control over the outward successes and failures of men's lives, Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. He has complete control over things seemingly accidental or insignificant, Proverbs 16, 33, which says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You roll dice in Vegas, God's already determined for the foundation of the world how the dice are coming up. Because God owns Vegas, and God runs Vegas. And by the way, what you do in Vegas will not stay in Vegas. <laughs> God's in control over the protection of the righteous, Psalm 4, verse 8, just one verse. God is in control of supplying the wants of God's people, Genesis 22, 8. God is in control of giving answers to prayer, 1 Samuel 1, 19. God is in control in the exposure and punishment of the wicked. Psalm 7, verses 12 through 13. God's in control of all things. Packer goes on and says, clear thinking. What is providence? It's God's provision, timely provision over all things. He creates life. He sustains life. Clear thinking about God's involvement in the world process and in the acts of rational creatures requires complementary sets of statements. Thus, a person takes action, or an event is triggered by natural causes, or Satan shows his hand, yet God overrules. Because his sovereignty rules over all, Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. This is the message of the book of Esther, where God's name nowhere appears, but his fingerprints are everywhere. I'm going to stop there. Okay.
So the manna in Exodus 16, all supply lines are cut off. So what happens? They get up in the morning, and there's this dew. Go back to Exodus 16, if you would. Uh, you know, guys, as you go in Exodus 16, I want to say this to you. Just what we've done so far, your hearts should be lifted. Your spirits should be lifted. Should they not? You're fighting off depression. This helps. This is the antidote. Chuck said it on Sunday, if you were here. He says, as long as I have breath, I'll never stop declaring the sovereignty of God. Because there is no hope apart from the sovereignty of God. There is no hope. But you see, we have massive hope. <laughs> because he's running the whole deal. Even when it looks like he's not, he is. It's stealth providence. <laughs> the military didn't invent stealth. God invented stealth. It's the invisible hand over the whole world and all of history and all of the future. And what's going on right now? What happens October 1st? And <laughs> What are we going to do? What are we going to do? You'll be all right. You'll probably be more aware of your need of God. <laughs> but you'll be all right. All right? So the people, yeah, okay, back to Exodus 16. The people were grumbling. They didn't like it because, anyway, we went over this last week. Look at 11, 16, 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them. Why? They're in the wilderness. Nobody wants to be in the wilderness. I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So the quails, verse 13, show up in the evening, and they get the meat. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of the dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said one to another, What is it? They did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much, some gathered little. When they had measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. The guy who took too much didn't have too much. Uh, he who had gathered little had no lack. Oh, you didn't get enough? Well, actually, God turns it into enough. Just like Jesus did on the feeding of the 5,000. Right? Well, how can that be? He's God. He's God. That's how it can be. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, the same Jesus in Exodus 16... And it was Jesus who was there. Jesus was the man, if you read 1 Corinthians 10. He said he was the man. I'm the bread of life. Uh, and, then, and then you go to John 6, Jesus feeding the five down. See, we've got the same Jesus. We have the same God. 
And you'll have him until you take your dying breath, and then you're face to face with him, if you trust in him alone, as your Redeemer and your Lord and your Savior. You see? This is the gospel. Uh, let's see. Every man gathered as much as he, sh he should eat. Uh, Moses said in 19, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning and it bred worms and became foul. Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. And then you can read on. Um, verse 26, six days you shall gather it. Seventh day of the Sabbath, there won't be any. So on the sixth day, as already said, God will give you double to get you through the Sabbath. And it won't go bad. The supernatural provision of God. It was the manna. We've defined manna as the timely provision of God in any and every area of your life at the precise time you need it because Jesus is the bread of life. He's the bread of all of your life. As Kuiper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So last week, after I taught, uh, Jeff Scruggs texted me, hey, we're grabbing a bite to eat. If you're, if you're hungry, come by. So I, I went by and saw Jeff, and he had some buddies with him. We sat down. And we've been talking about the different kinds of manna last week. There's physical manna. There's uh, emotional manna, when you're beat up emotionally. Paul said, uh, you remember our affliction in Asia when we were excessively burdened beyond our strength? So that we despaired even of life. And then he goes on a little bit later and says, But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus was emotional manna. Sometimes you're just beat up and, you're, and God will just send a friend or a phone call. That's manna. It's a well-timed help. Right? That's manna. There's all kinds of manna in different levels of life. Sometimes it's, it's a career manna. God will send someone along and suddenly they, they have favor and, yeah, I'm 58 years old. Nobody's hiring. I'm, I've been out of work for three years and all of a sudden, you say, man, there's no hope for me. And all of a sudden, somebody will call you and, hey, I had a guy this day tell me, yeah, he said, I remember my wilderness and, man, I almost went bankrupt. I was working for this company. He goes, you know what's wild, Steve? He goes, now I own the company. That's pretty wild. He goes, yeah, we couldn't have kids. For years, we couldn't have kids. I said, wow, we, we love kids. He said, you couldn't have kids. He goes, yeah, but we got triplets. That's a triple providence. And then they needed triple babysitters to handle the blessing of God. And, and so I'm with Jeff and his friends, and we're talking, and there's different kinds of providence in different areas of life. And as I said, now, we we're talking about the manna, and one of the guys said, yeah, I had, man, I've had manna. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, I've had manna, just like Jeff has had manna. I said, well, really? He goes, yeah. He said, my wife and I are getting remarried next month. We've been divorced for three years. Wow. I said, that's pretty wild. He goes, yeah, I read Jeff and Cheryl's book. See, Jeff and Cheryl have a marriage ministry. But Jeff and Cheryl, they were divorced for seven years. And then God providentially worked in their, both their lives while they were apart, and they get remarried. And then Jeff's working for his company and Cheryl's doing And then couples find out and they're talking to couples. And then they write a book and they get all these calls and all this stuff. And I remember when Jeff was trying to do his ministry on the side and he had this job. And we were talking, we're Mary and I and Jeff and Cheryl were talking. I said, you know, Jeff, we just need to pray that God will get you fired. 
so you can do this full time. Because if they fire you, they got to give you severance. And we, I was kind of joking, but then Mary and Cheryl started praying. And Jeff got fired. And, you know, he didn't get three months severance. He thought he was going to get six. And if I'm telling it right, Jeff, I think he wound up getting nine months severance, which helped you transition into your ministry. Oh, and his friend, who sat at the table, said, yeah, I read, I, read, uh, I read their book. And I just divorced my wife. And we'd had twins. So I emailed Jeff, and then found out he lived in the area. And we got with him, and I'd been meeting Jeff and going to church and Started coming studying. He says, pretty well. My wife and I are getting remarried next month. So you never know. Now, does that happen to everyone? No, because you can't make someone else do what was right. You have to have two people open to the things of God. But you see, you can't make someone else do what's right. But you do what's right. You follow the Savior. Am I making sense? He'll make a way for you. I want to make just a couple of basic um, observations about manna um, for where you are tonight. Manna is a timely provision of God that can come in any area of your life, any level of your life, when all supply lines are cut off and you're without hope. Okay? By the way, one other thing from Arthur Pink you remember this in here? He's talking about an omer. They'd measure it with an omer. How many of you guys have got an omer in your kitchen? You don't even know if you've got a spatula in your kitchen. You're like me. You're never in there except to eat. Well, anyway, what's an omer? We don't have omers. Listen to this. Pink says, an omer was to be gathered for every one of these two million souls, and an omer is the equivalent of six pints. Okay. Um, let me give you a principle. Here's my first observation about manna. Manna is massive. Massive. We'll say they're only to take six pints. Yeah, I know, but hold on. I want to show you how massive manna is. Okay? An omer was to be gathered for each of the two million people. An omer is the equivalent of six pints. That would be 12 million pints, or 9 million pounds, gathered daily. Which was 4,500 tons. Daily. Hence, 10 trains, each having 30 cars, and each car having in it 15 tons, would be needed for a single day's supply. Did you get that? Have you ever driven up towards Wichita Falls and as you're driving up whatever that highway is, right next to you you see the trains coming down? And sometimes they're parked on the side. You know what those trains have got on them? Coal. Coal. There aren't any coal mines in Texas. Yeah, but most of our electricity comes from coal. You know what those trains are doing? They're bringing in coal from Montana, 
from West Virginia, from Pennsylvania. They're bringing coal to Texas. And if those trains, if those supply lines are ever cut off, guess what? You're going to be looking for Grandpa's kerosene lamp. Because we got to have a steady supply line of coal to keep the lights on around here. What was that again? To feed those people every day? It would be 12 million pints, 9 million pounds gathered daily, which was 4,500 tons. Hence, 10 trains, each having 30 cars, and each car having in it 15 tons would be needed for a single day's supply. And it was there every single day because manna is massive. It's not only manna for God's people. God gives manna a timely provision to the whole world. To the whole world. We're, we, we, we tend not to think of this, once again, because we drink the Kool-Aid of the world system. But if you look at Psalm 65, who is it that sustains life? Who is it that does this? It's God. Then you can look at Psalm 104, and I don't have time to go into Psalm 104. Uh, verse 9, you visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare, you prepare their grain. And thus you prepare the earth. You water the furrows of the earth. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Where does the grain, where does the meat, where does the whole foods, produce, organic stuff come from? It comes from him. Look at Psalm 104. I'm going to go there. Verse 5. Uh, 104.5. He established the earth on its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. Verse 9. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. He's talking about the waters. He's talking about the flood. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Where do you get your food? Where do you get your wine? Where do you get anything? It comes from the hand of Almighty God. He sustains the whole world. Does he not? And man, when we get really desperate and there's drought in Georgia and there's no water, the governor will finally pray to God. <laughs> and be excruciated in the newspapers. And then God sent rain. Our governor got, prayed for rain, we got rain. See, when you acknowledge God, he blesses that. Manna is massive. It, it, but the, there would be no sustenance of life without the manna of God. The, 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 the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's the providence of God. The Lord is good to all. But he has special promises for his people. So it's massive. It's massive. It's daily. It's also daily. Um, did you notice in Exodus 16 that you could only collect enough for the day? And if you took too much, God would just trim it. If you didn't take enough, he'd fill it. 
You see? So at the end of the day, you are out. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. See, some of you guys are worried about your bank accounts because of what's going on. And you're, you know, some guys are doing okay, other guys are really tight. And see, that, that, that's hard on us. Um, it says in Exodus 16, you don't leave the man until the morning. Don't try to store it up. Uh, Matthew Henry says, God says, let them learn to go to bed and sleep quietly, though they have not a bit of bread in their tent, nor in all their camp, trusting that God with the following day will bring them their daily bread. It is sure and safer in God's storehouse than in their own, and would thence come to them sweeter and fresher. You don't need to store it up. That manna comes just like out of the bakery, man. You see? We want to store everything up. Usually God lets us store some up. If you're in a season where you don't have any stored up, it's okay. Go to sleep because he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. Psalm 127. Manna is massive. Manna is daily. That's my second observation. And let me give you a third observation. Manna is continual. It is continual. It is continual. Um, I, last week, ended by telling you, I, I said I had been in two wildernesses in my adult life after I met Mary and was married to her. Before I met Mary, there was a, I, I had a wilderness. I was uh, in seminary. I was 24 years old. Uh, I was halfway through seminary. Long story, I wanted to go to Dallas, but long story, couldn't get in. Went to Western in Portland. Eventually did another degree at Dallas, but I'm at Western Seminary in Portland. I was working on the truck docks at night to get me through. And, and then suddenly all this stuff started happening in Oregon. This is back in like 73, 74. Uh, with the environmental stuff and you can't log and all this and the spotted owl and that whole thing. And it just basically shut down the whole economy of Oregon back then. That's all they, I mean, they didn't have much. Not like technology today. So suddenly I, I was laid off from the truck docks and I'm scrambling to try to find a job to stay in school. A buddy of mine, and I was getting down on the wire, and he said to me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm packing up this weekend. I'm going back to California. I'm going home. I'm out of money. And he said, you know, Steve, let me make a call. And he had a family friend who was actually his Sunday school teacher when he was a little boy. This man's office was in the top floor of the highest high rise in Portland, Oregon. And he was uh, the CEO of the biggest company in Oregon at that time. Godly man, Christian man. My friend got me in to see this gentleman. And I walked in, I was a little intimidated, and he was very gracious, huge office. Very nice man, uh, listened to me, and he said, so, you know, I've been told you're looking for work, and you ran out of work, you're trying to stay in seminary. And I said, yeah, I'm just looking to work so I can finish school, and got another year and a half, and... He said, I think that'd be good if you could stay in school. Um, he said, can you come back tomorrow at 4? I said, yes, sir, I can't. He said, 
I'll see you at four. Let me see what I can do. He was very gracious, listened to me, gave me plenty of time. I walked in at four o'clock. I was shown into his office, and he said, um, he said, I'm sorry, I have nothing for you. Thank you for coming in. And he rose and shook my hand. And he was completely the antithesis of what he had been the day before. I, 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 it was startling. And I, and I thought, I have done something to offend this gentleman. And I said to him, I said, sir, uh, I just want to clarify. I said, I appreciate your time, and that's fine. Uh, I, I said, you know, I came back, I believe, didn't you ask me to come back? He said, oh, absolutely, and thank you for coming back. It was, it was so strange and such a switch from his demeanor and his conversation and his support that he, I mean, he was almost cold, almost, not quite, but close. I went down that elevator, walked out those steps, and I remember walking down the steps of that massive big skyscraper and thinking to myself, that was so weird. It had to be from God. I remember that. I packed up my VW, went home, uh, went to the truck docks in San Jose, talked to a couple of the guys. They said, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's January, not a lot happening. But maybe we can give you a shift or two a week. And then, you know, probably April, May, it'll pick up. We can hire you. I said, great. And I had, see, I wanted to finish seminary. I had all these books. I had all these books. There's required reading, collateral reading. I took all my books with me. And I was kind of frustrated because, see, my goal was to get my degree. But one of the reasons you go to seminary is to learn. So what happened to me was, while I could only work one or two shifts and it was good money, I was reading all the books I didn't have time to read when I was working and uh, going to seminary and then working at night. Are you following this? And then they'd give me another shift, another shift. And finally, after about four months, they said to me, hey, two weeks from now, we'll put you on full-time graveyard. I said, great. Because then I could save my money and I could be back in school the next January. Great. Excellent. That Sunday night, I go to church at Peninsula Bible Church where Ray Stedman's the pastor. Chuck used to be an intern at Peninsula Bible Church under Ray Stedman. And they had a service called Body Life on Sunday nights. Kind of not a typical church service, kind of loose. They'd have teaching, kind of an open mic. You could share, give a testimony or ask for prayer. You know, a bunch of college kids everywhere, just all over the building, outside in the patio. There were just all kinds of young people. And, and that night I'm sitting there and I'm so pumped because I, I'm going to start working in two weeks. Man, it was an answer to prayer. Here's what happened. I... Uh, and it was, it was kind of a downer that night. Everybody was sharing. It was just depressing. And it was, everybody was up against the wall. And it was just, and I thought, gosh, this is kind of a downer. And I've had something great happen. So the guy with the mic walked by and I just motioned. And I got up and said, well, I just want to say thanks to the Lord because I've been waiting for four months. And I just this week found out I'm going to start work two weeks from now full time. And I'll be able to get back to seminary. And I just wanted to say thanks to the Lord, you know, if you're discouraged. He answers prayer. Just hang in there. That was all. At the end of the service, a guy makes a beeline for me. And he says, I know you from somewhere. And the guy's probably 30. And I said, well, where are you from? He goes, Arizona. I said, I've only been to Arizona once in my life. And I was there with the ministry team when you were in this church in Tucson. He goes, that's my church. And I said, oh, okay. And he goes, wasn't Rich leading that group? And I said, yeah. He goes, I went to college with Rich. And he goes, I remember you. you didn't you MC that thing? And I said, yeah, yeah. 
And then we start talking. And I said, what are you doing up here? He goes, I'm pastor of that church now. Back then I was the youth, now I'm the pastor. I said, oh. I said, what are you doing up here? He said, I'm looking for someone to pastor that church with me. I said, oh, that's pretty wild. He said, I read about what was going on up here, and I decided to come up. And I said, good. He said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I mentioned that I'm going to go back to seminary. He said, oh, what are you doing right now? I said, nothing. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? I said, yeah. So we went out and sat down because we knew some different people. You know, just conversation. And we talked for about two hours, and we'd both been raised in the same denominational background. His church was out of the same denominational background. And I'd had to work through some things. Uh, and he was working through some of the same things, and I was maybe two years ahead of him on what I was working through and what I'd been learning in seminary. And somehow we started talking, and he started me asking questions. And I said, well, that passage, I thought it was this, but it appears more it's this, this, and this. And he goes, man, I never thought of that. Where'd you learn? And I said, at seminary. And, da, 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 da. and we had this connection. And he said, yeah, I'm trying to transition my church out of that tradition into this tradition of just the Bible, just reading the Bible. And I said, good. And he said, yeah, I'm looking for someone to help me. I said, you mentioned that. He said, I think you're the guy. I said, I'm not your guy. Because I'm in this for the money. I didn't say that, but I was thinking. I got to get money to go to seminary to get my degree. And he said, how much are you going to make at that job? Can I ask you? And I said, it was pretty good money. He goes, well, how much are you going to make in a month when you go full time? And I said, well, it ought to come out to this. He said, what if we match that? I said, you don't want to do that. Why would you want me? He goes, I think there's, I, I think there's something going on here. I'm some 24-year-old kid. I, I said, I don't think so. I'm not your guy. Uh, I'll see you. Enjoy talking with you. He calls me two days later. He said, hey, we'd like you to fly down here. I said, yeah. I said, I, I'm not coming down. I, I, th I, this is nuts. I got to finish seminary and get back and get my degree and graduate. He said, would you at least come down? When do you start work? I said, about 12 days. He said, why don't you come down this weekend? We'll fly you down. We'll take you to dinner. Why don't you just come down? What else are you going to do? So I went down. Now with the guys on the board. They're all the same tradition. Well, tell us what you told Bill about this and this and this doctor and this doctor. I said, well, I just learned it. I mean, I've been working on this for two years. Yeah, but tell us. So I told him, I go, huh, we think you need to be here. I went. I was there for six months. They let me preach half the time. I never preached in my life. I didn't even know if I could preach. They gave me an opportunity. It was, it, and then I'm going back to at the end of six months, and somehow, and then they said, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going we're to pay your tuition to finish your master's. I told you last week, I was in a church later I didn't want to go to, who paid for my doctorate. I was in another church prior to that, that I didn't want to go to, who paid for my master's. And I learned things in that church I never would have learned in seminary. What I'm saying is, guys, see, what you might have expected, I go into the tall tower, the CEO, the big company, and the guy says, Steve, I'm going to hand you a job, and that's your manna. But sometimes manna is delayed. And sometimes God doesn't do it the way you think he's going to do it. My friend said, Steve, if he doesn't get you a job, he's got a private foundation worth millions. But God didn't do that. You never know what God's going to do. I got one more story and I'm done. Manna is massive. In 98, 98 was a tough year. I do men's ministry. Uh, uh, there was a lot of men's ministry going on. 
I was doing all kinds of conferences. We were probably averaging 1,500 at a conference. And then what happened in 98, Promise Keepers announced they were going to 20-something different cities. I had, uh, and within a matter of weeks, I had, uh, I had cancellations because I was going to those cities and everybody canceled on me. And I suddenly looked at my calendar and I had no conferences, therefore no income for the next five and a half months. And I was part of Promise Keepers. But we'll say, hey, we'll have you come in a couple years. But, but see, I, anyway. And I had a small staff that I had to pay them. And things got really, really tight. And I thought, how am I going to make it for six months? I mean, how the heck am I going to make it? And I remember being so discouraged on that blue couch. And Mary was in the blue chair. And we were talking. And I, just, I was so overwhelmed. I could not see any possible way we could make it. And somehow we just... But I was going in the hole. You remember what he said about going into the wilderness further and further away from all supply lines? Sometimes God takes you further and further from where you want to be and you say, I'm going deeper and deeper in the hole. This makes no sense. This is irrational. This is counterintuitive. I'm going the wrong way. And I began to question if I should even be in men's ministry. I was thinking about just shutting it down and pastoring some little church somewhere. I mean, I'm thinking, this is nuts. I'm going in the hole financially. I had to break an IRA. And all you CPAs are saying, don't you ever break an IRA. Well, you get desperate, you'll break it. And you'll pay the penalty if you got a daughter in college. Anyway, I did it. Okay, and I paid the penalty. I get to Christmas, and I'm, I'm 100000 in the hole. See, I didn't used to tell these stories because I'd get embarrassed. I didn't want anybody to know. Now I tell them all the time. You know why I tell them? Because of the goodness of God, and some of you guys are there, and you think you're the only guy who's ever been there. You're not the only guy. All kinds of guys have been there. I'm 100000 in the hole. Back then, I would raise money. I had spent the day talking to potential donors. Nobody had any interest. It was a few days before Christmas. I remember driving back to the house, coming in. I was so depressed. I was so discouraged. I think, I need to get out of this thing. What am I doing? This is insane. God's not blessing it. I'm an idiot. I can't believe I got myself in a hole like this. I'm thinking if I walked if if I walked into the house and I somebody dropped a hundred thousand in cash on my front step, that would get me to zero. <laughs> That's what you call deep. If I got a hundred thousand, I would be at zero. And it's three or four days before Christmas. I got to screw up my courage and walk in because the kids are home. Everybody's happy about Christmas. And I go, hey, how'd it go? Hey, hey, Merry Christmas. Hey, Happy New Year. Hey, we're going to eat. Oh, okay, good. I'm so sick I couldn't even eat. Worried to death. I wasn't looking forward to Christmas. Rachel was home from college. I was going to have to tell her you can't go back to college. We're going to shut this thing down. Mary eating dinner. Oh, uh, this gentleman called. I'd known him and his son and on the East Coast. And he called to say, hey, Merry Christmas. Oh, great. He was sorry. He missed you. He read that book you sent him, you know. And I said, oh, yeah, great, great. I'm glad he, I wasn't here. I don't want to talk to anybody. Smiling, <laughs> oh, you know. It's good. <laughs> wonderful. And, uh, I, you know, I think I'm just going to go to bed because I, I, I'm really, t- I was depressed. I went to bed, I don't know, 8.30. I was so depressed because the need was so massive. <sighs> Mary had said, by the way, he said he just sent you a note, but he wanted to call. I said, fine. I think it was the next day, or it could have been two days later. 
one of the guys in the office called me. He said, I came in to check mail. I said, yeah. He goes, there's a note here from, and it was the gentleman. I said, oh, well, that's good. He goes, hey, Steve, there's a check made out to the ministry. I said, oh, that's, that's nice. He said, Steve, it's for $200,000. Yeah, yeah. That was manna. There was a massive need. I couldn't, I couldn't in my wildest dreams figure how that would. And God sent double. Did I call the man? Did I talk with him? Did he know we had any? He knew nothing but God moves human hearts. And it was a well-timed help. I don't care where you are. We serve a living God. We thank you, Father, that this is real. It's real. It's true. We trust in you with all our hearts and give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.